welcome to the first ever episode seven of Fintech Insider. Running jokes are how we roll in this place. Coming to you live as ever from level 39, but also simultaneously in four separate countries. Uh, we've got Hong Kong, we've got Australia, and of course we've got Singapore. So this is a special Asia-Pacific episode, um, and we've got a number of key guests here to join us this week. I think you'll really enjoy what Rob Findlay, Chloe James, and James Lloyd have to say. Um, so without further ado, here's the news. Today's news has very much of an Asia-Pacific flavor to it, as do our guests. So if I may ask Rob Findlay, could you please very much uh, introduce yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Thanks, Simon. Great to be on the show and a real pleasure and fantastic to see this show booming as it is across the world. And I'm the founder of Next Money, which is a global network of fintech innovators and uh, practitioners around the world. And many of the people on this show and, and listeners out there hopefully are a part of that network. And we run in conferences, uh, city chapters, and a whole bunch of other services for the industry and with a particular focus on, on Asia because we're born in Singapore and, and uh, really uh, fascinated by this region. So uh, my background is in design and creativity and and, uh, and and advertising, but now moved into the banking world to try and shake things up and uh, keen to hear uh, from you guys and our other guests today. Thank you very much, Rob. Great to have you with us. Uh, James Lloyd from uh, Ernst & Young. James, can you introduce yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Sure. Well, I mean, firstly, I'm pretty excited to hear more from Rob uh, with a background in creativity shaking up the banking world. So, uh, you know, Happy to happy to share more. I'll learn the best yeah. for you, James. I learned all I know. <laughs> Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, I've been enjoying the first few episodes, and, and long may it continue. So, yeah, James Lloyd, I, I lead EY's fintech capability across Asia Pacific. Uh, pretty recent joiner to the firm, having come from a, a fintech background myself. First e-commerce payments in Europe, and uh, then alternative finance out here in Asia. So, really looking at you know, market trends, opportunities, challenges, etc. for the big guys, but then also we're very keen on sourcing and supporting uh, high growth potential fintechs in the region. So yeah, I was happy to swap notes, looking forward to getting on. James, great to have you with us. And uh, Chloe James as well, just to confuse things, your last name is James's first name, but uh, great to have you with us. Who are you and what do you do? Sure, I thought that might confuse matters. Um, mm -hmm. Thanks, Simon, great to be on. Uh, the show, really um, excited about it. Uh, Chloe James, so I'm the Global Media and PR Director for RFI Group. We're a business intelligence firm. Uh, we focus exclusively on financial services, so essentially a research firm for all big banks around the world. Really interested in the um, APAC market with offices in Singapore and Hong Kong as well as our other global offices. I'm also a presenter for Sky News in Australia, so I have a keen interest in that area as well and looking forward to talking about all the topics today. Fantastic. And as ever, our presenters are David, Chris, and Jason. David, Chris, Jason, say hello briefly. Hello briefly. Hello, briefly. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Um, okay, so um, James, first story up. Um, interesting one here from uh, coming out of Finextra. Uh, Alibaba makes a VR payments play. VR and payments, virtual reality and payments. I imagine myself in some sort of futuristic landscape buying all kinds of virtual currencies and video games and you know, kind of this no man's sky type feel to it. Um, do you think this is some hype? Is this a reality? What are your thoughts on uh, VR and payments? Is this just uh, a lot of hype or are we looking at something real here? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm struggling to get overly excited by this, if I'm honest. Uh, I, I mean, I do think what perhaps the lesson learned here is 
if Alibaba and in particular their financial affiliate Ant Financial release anything or any news or, or any you know potential product features, it gets a lot of attention. You know, and as it should. I mean, they've got just so much uh, going for them right now. Alibaba, of course, we know the, the e-commerce behemoth just reported phenomenal quarterly results out of New York. Uh, and then Ant Financial, which is is the financial affiliate, which I personally would say is probably the most interesting fintech globally right now. Um, so very happy to speak on that topic for several hours. As to VR payments, doesn't thrill me, but very happy to talk about what does, and that's what Ant Financial are doing both within China and increasingly into Europe and the U.S. James, I don't know if you saw the video they threw out there with the announcement, but uh, I got overexcited because one minute, 40 seconds into the video, it was a guy shopping for virtual underwear for his virtual girlfriend, which was very interesting. <laughs> Are you sure that was the same video? Or was that, Chris, oh, yeah, I don't know. It was. I think they were definitely trying to say that, you know, if you want to have um, virtual in intimacy, then you need virtual money to do it. <laughs> There's a niche within a niche, but a very big niche. Uh, Rob, did you have any thoughts here? Yeah, I don't know. I think uh, it, it's interesting in, in the fact that we're now integrating payments into a space where you know new technology is going and, and payments comes along with it. And um, maybe it's like when we integrate mobile payments into into applications where the payment becomes invisible, or maybe it's like when we we start to understand um, the invisibility of banking per se, and, and, it, and it becomes part of a new experience in a really integrated way. So I don't know, I think it's, I think it's yes, in the short term, it's probably potentially a distraction, but I wonder if, like in the gaming world, it becomes quite the norm, and, and I would say in a few years' time, there'll be something there that will be quite normal, uh, whether there's the traditional bank brands in that, that moment or or not, I really doubt, um, but I'll be really excited to see where it goes, but I'm like James, in the short term, there are some bigger, more interesting things that will affect our lives in the short to medium term. The longer term, I think this will become something quite integrated and quite normal. That's very interesting, Rob. I can see Minecraft with a cash machine in there somewhere. Um, did you have any thoughts there, Jason? Yeah, well, I guess it's one of those things that you see make the headlines because you've got one of these you know, massive corporations, you know, what's Alibaba worth, 480 billion. So in the end, they're looking you know, not only next quarter and next year, but five, ten years down the line. And I think we see things from Apple and Facebook and others, you know, just having, just exploring the new context, you know, what life will be like in five or ten years' time, and then, then how their services will fit in there. So um, it, it's almost unfortunate that, that this stuff is the kind of sexy, shiny things, because you know, I agree with Rob, the, the stuff that Amp Financial and others are doing right now is amazing. But these little forays into what will those future contexts be, given that augmented reality and virtual reality you know, will be part of everyone's lives. I think everyone, rightly so, if you've got a market cap of 180 billion, is looking at where those next options and possibilities will be and how they can get involved, just to test the water now. Makes sense. Actually, quite, quite interesting, because um, I recently was writing about Ant Financial creating a core banking service available on a pay-as-you-go basis to banks in China. And it got into this huge debate around whether everything that Alibaba announces, the media just falls in love with and says, oh, isn't it wonderful, rather than actually questioning, is there really substance here? Because how could they have developed a full core banking service covering all aspects of financial services in just a few years? I mean, it's unlikely. Um, having said that, 
they may have done it, but it's unlikely. I am a little yeah. bit of a and financial fanboy, and I appreciate that anything related to China, it's, it's kind of easy to get blinded by the lights. But at the same time, I mean, you got to think about these guys have about 500 million active payment customers. They've got yeah about 150 million wealth management customers on Weibo. They've got you know SME loans. They've done a few million of that insurance. They've got three to four hundred million insurance customers off the platform. They're doing credit reference with Sesame Credit. I mean, as with anything in China, just things hundreds of millions, and you begin to switch off. But just to give you a sense of the scope and the reach of this company I, in such a short period of time, I think is genuinely phenomenal. So, you know, as as regards. The VOR bit, and I know, and I take Jason's point. It's a future use case, and so on. I, I just struggle to get excited because I think it's so niche, niche. Whereas I think what they're doing now is genuinely transformative right now in, in Asia Pacific and in China. And by the way, they're coming to Europe. They're cutting deals with Wirecard. They're cutting deals with Ingenico. They're they're buying uh, and investing in, in in India, in in Vietnam, in you know, all over in Singapore. So so yeah, I mean, okay, sorry. That's that, that's my aunt rant over for now, but. <laughs> This is a company that to watch like every conceivable way. But, but there, is, there, is, there is a key point James just raised there, which is, is they are going global. They're not just in China, which is what a lot of people mistakenly believe. Um, I think we'll definitely get back into some Alibaba goodness in a little while. It seems like it's a subject you cannot avoid, uh, the, the, especially the Ant Financial side. So we'll, we'll come, uh, nice little foreshadow of what's to come in, in, in the later segment of the show. Uh, Chris, I wanted to throw this one to you, the next story. Standard Charts that are rolling out Touch ID across uh, Asia Pacific and the Middle East and Africa. Do you, do you know what's behind this one? I think um, we're seeing the beginnings of Touch ID and, and biometrics become the norm now in, in banking or any sort of financial services. What are your thoughts here? Well, I for a long time, we've known that biometrics makes sense as an authentication technique, but the technology itself has not been ready for prime time, mainly because of positives and negatives, and it's often too intrusive or too difficult to roll out. For example, if or face recognition machines, whereas Apple's Touch ID or Samsung's is um, making it much more usable. And if you think about mobile, uh, it's not just fingerprints, um, but it's also meant to be for telephone calls. <laughs> so voice biometrics makes absolute sense. And we've seen quite a few banks moving towards rolling out integrated fingerprint and voice biometrics, not just standard chartered in Asia, Africa, Middle East, but quite a few other banks. But I think this one's reached the headlines because they're making it something that's across 15 markets and it's a major program that's being rolled out and not just in one country but in Singapore, United Arab Emirates, India and so um, and soon to be China, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Pakistan so it's, it really is a major program and one of the key things here is that when so many people don't have um, the skills to read and write even, particularly in economies where, um, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, you've got people who don't even have identities. Um, Standard Chartered giving this ability to identify people using fingerprint uh, in Botswana, Ghana, Kenya, you know, it, it, it just really makes inclusion so much easier and so much better. I mean, I mean, we've seen really good digital identity programs rolled out in, in India specifically, and I think right now, Combining digital identity and um, biometrics is going to be something that becomes a really cheap way of r rolling out a mobile wallet service that's usable, and Standard Chartered is probably on the leading edge of doing that. Mm, Standard Chartered. Um, in your backyard there in um, Singapore, Rob, any, any thoughts on Touch ID becoming the norm? Well, I think uh, it's long overdue, to be honest. I think there are some markets that have adapted to that a long time ago, and when you analyze the way that 
biometrics really work. You know, the voice is probably the most convenient and the most secure as a combination. And I'm not sure what the, the hesitation's been. Certainly from a point of view of Touch ID for Standchart, I mean, again, I can use Apple Pay now in the same way. I just see it as, as a catch-up, to be honest. I'm not, I mean, it's impressive in the fact that they've got it down across multiple markets, but it's been around for a long time, and it's not particularly new. So I don't see it as massive news. Yeah, it's getting it's starting to get a bit boring. This everybody's rolled out a touch ID in a press release on on having done it. But David, you you found some stuff that from one or two banks across the course of the eleven FS research team that that's pretty interesting around the facial recognition side. Yeah, I think um, sort of naming no names at this stage, but I think there's there's definitely some security issues that need to be sort of faced into with some of this stuff. Um, I think both in terms of touch ID, there's been pretty good cases where people are able to clone people's fingerprints and access phones very very easily. You know, we did some research this week looking at uh, facial recognition and with the um, new feature of uh, the latest version of iOS where it takes a small video, any element of movement that's required in authentication is easily mimicked by a, a picture of the, the person. So it kind of feels like, um, although I, I think people are quite keen to adopt these things, I think the, the sort of security measures in here really needs to be played up. For me, look, firstly, I would never underestimate the actual difficulties within a large organization in, in rolling out these. So I don't want to belittle it and say, I mean, I, I do think this is an interesting advancement. I think we're going to see more of it. I think very quickly it'll become table stakes um, to have this kind of biometric uh, um, authentication. I mean, I do think perhaps for me the first thing it makes me think of is Adhar Authentication Service in India. So you've got, you know, you've got like a billion people at this stage who have been you know, iris scanned, fingerprinted, uh, and this is for the, the government-mandated, uh, you know, KYC, well, I shouldn't say KYC, identification program that has been rolled out on scale there. So, you know, I, I guess the point, the mildly interesting point that I would make is, you know, while, while not uh, lessening the difficulties of these types of rollouts, I think it's, I think perhaps some of the greatest innovations we're going to see in, in, in some of the more developing markets where it is this classical technical leapfrog, and they're not going through the, the traditional process. So... Yeah, I'm keeping my eye on on India, uh, a couple of other places, developing markets, many of which are actually, of course, out here in Asia, um, to see, okay, where is this biometric really going to go? What's it going to do for account opening? What's it going to do for account servicing? What's it going to do for, for all of that kind of exciting uh, chatbot messaging and everything we're going to get with, with future financial services? It makes total sense. I mean, I think it's one thing to authenticate a customer that you've already identified uh, via a paper process. So if I come along to a bank and I give them two pieces of paper and then from then on in I can use my fingerprint, like how secure is that? But the point you make about India I think is an interesting one, which is the identification of that customer themselves. Well, you've got a national database of all of those irises and, and fingerprints right there, so it becomes a, a very different story. I mean, Chloe, do you have any thoughts here? Um, the video banking rolling out of the nine markets I think is quite interesting. We've done quite a bit of work with Mashrik Bank in the UAE who brought that out quite a few years ago now, so I wouldn't say that's massively new, but it'll be, ne it'll be interesting to see how it um, rolls out over those other areas. Another point I'd make is we're doing some other work with Standard Chartered uh, Lab at the moment. So um, we've got a conference coming up in a couple of couple of weeks actually, and they'll be coming and presenting on lots of new things that they're rolling out in this area. So not massively new, but it's certainly changing. I think the speed in which things is changing is is kind of getting quicker and quicker. 
Yeah, I think there's a couple of quick things I was going to throw in, which is I'm not sure it's just on Touch ID. I didn't see that in the announcement because that implies it's just Apple Touch ID. And so I, I'm not sure whether they're doing something that's more than that. But I think a key point in Stan Chart's case is it's one of the few banks that's got so many countries of presence that it, it does imply that if I was traveling from Kenya to other parts of Africa or from Asia to Africa, I've got the same ID to, to be able to use across different markets. And one of the key things, I guess, that I'll come back to is um, you know, the easier you can make it to access the account securely and authenticate without PIN and passwords is a key point here. And it's nothing new necessarily to use voice and um, touch and fingerprint um, identification, but it is new when you bring it to um, markets that are global uh, and make that happen really quickly. Brilliant. And I think there's a missing piece here as well, um, Chris and, and guys, around uh, corporate banking, uh, which is, you know, you think about a large corporate like a, you know, a large telco or, or a mining conglomerate that's got um, operations in, you know, all parts of the world and Standard Chartered is their bank. Every time they want to move more than a million pounds, they have to re-KYC all of their directors. So you've got to go find a passport from people who have more than 10% of the company just to start moving money around, which is absolutely patently absurd. So this kind of stuff could make that a whole, whole lot simpler. So yeah, I can see uh, a whole lot of upside for it. And I think it was uh, James that made the point that getting anything done in a bank is a victory. So we should probably applaud them, even if it is a bit of a me too play. But it, as you were saying, Chris, it, it sounds like there's a, there's a bit more there to it. So yeah, I mean, I would say, Simon, just to reiterate your point there as well. I mean, I think fundamentally, you know, if we want to, if we want transformative change in, in fintech, it's going to be as much around building that KYC KYC uh, ecosystem from the ground up. I mean, I think these are interesting technical solutions. I think there's, you know, there's customer experience benefits to it, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, just the banking system generally, what's sitting in the background as regards identification, authentication. I mean, unless we really begin to solve some of this stuff through the cycle, you know. Anyway. <laughs> I know you're so right. Um, I think that's we could talk about this one all day clearly, but uh, we we got to move on. Needs must. Uh, so there's one here, and I'm going to butcher the name. So please, anybody, step in and help me pronounce it correctly. A company called Fenkil uh, gets 235 million US dollar equivalent to help people pay in happy installments. Now, uh, when I found this link, it seems like it's it's broken since, um, it, but it was on uh, Tech in Asia, um, and that's an awful lot of money for basically installments um, software. In fact, no, the link is now loading. It was just my Wi-Fi. Um, now, paying in installments seems to me like uh, an interesting business model that's been tried out in Europe a lot, and I know it's I know it's um, kind of interesting um, that the Italians tend to use this as a way to pay quite often. Um, but how is this uh, working in region and specifically uh, in China and Singapore? I mean, Rob, did you have any thoughts? Yes. I mean, I think um, installments payments here is, is very much the norm. I, mean, I think um, you know, people want to pay for things the least amounts they can up front as possible. It's this is this is the part of the world where people prepay everything. They prepay for everything from phone credit to shampoo in small sachets. So so really the the idea of installment payments is, is no surprise at all. And um, uh, it's a pretty interesting move, but uh, not a huge surprise for me. I interviewed a guy on Sky News probably a week ago, Nick Mulner, who is the CEO of Afterpay, which is exactly one of these businesses in Australia. He's the youngest CEO on the ASX now um, at 26. He started off with an online jewellery store and has just built this Afterpay, which is a really interesting platform. They've, they've just get, they're getting money just chucked at them from 
<laughs> sort of all over the place. Um, so it's certainly taking off in Australia. It's huge. They're they're announcing new partnerships with different retailers daily, um, big retailers here in Australia. So it's certainly big down here. I can't actually speak to um, the rest of APAC at the moment. I know that they definitely have a view to be going there though. So it's big from um, from my view. A couple, couple of observations. A, another day, another $235 million uh, startup gets funded in, in China. I mean, you know, <laughs> wake me when it's half a bill. But I mean, look, you know, obviously this is a super interesting company. I actually, I actually do not know it in detail. I'd heard the name before because I know a couple of years ago Tencent were looking at it for potential partnerships, etc. But you know, for me, I think it's emblematic of a couple of things: a, the size of the opportunity in China, and hence the capital chasing it; um, b, the fact that for all the talk of fintech, um, you know, innovation, disruption, disintermediation, actually a lot of these business models, as we all know, have been around for a long time, and what the internet is facilitating is you know, just a more efficient means of, of deployment. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, one to watch. Um, I mean, what else can you say? It, it is 235 million US. That's that's a heck of a lot of money. Uh, I think to Rob's point, you know, th th there's a cultural norm out here in relation to this, but also credit card penetration in China is very low as compared to what you guys would have in the UK and, and elsewhere in developed markets. So look, th 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 there's a whole context to this. I mean, I think it's fascinating at a couple of levels, sure. Oh, I just, I just wanted to jump in on this point. Just another really interesting point that the guy that I was speaking about made was that they're completely disrupting lay-by. And he said someone had explained to him lay-by was like visiting your clothes in jail, which I could really relate to. I thought that was quite funny. And, and Afterpay is completely changing it. So I think any, any kind of uh, tech area that's finding somewhere to disrupt that's really ripe for the picking are going to be getting these massive rounds of funding and they are huge you know they're announced daily as as the guys were saying makes sense Jason you want to add something in I guess I agree with the guys that, uh, that the model has been around since you know catalog shopping and, and in the end uh, this is this is nice from two perspectives there are a lot of businesses a lot of banks looking at where's the next big lending model and then on the on the other hand you've got the whole sort of growth around the point of sale context that actually people don't want to look at something you know some high-end handbag think about how they're going to uh, borrow the money, go to their bank, go to a peer-to-peer -peer lender, borrow the money and then buy it. You know, they want everything in one spot. So whether that's insurance, whether that's lending, you know, whatever that is, there's something really nice about bringing those services together into a point-of-sale context. And then I think that combined with this whole smoothing out personal finance, people have those annual bills, quarterly bills, something big that they want to, uh, to buy. To be able to smooth that out it seems to be one of the modern pain points that you can see a lot of businesses uh, come along to. Let me echo that. I mean, I keep waiting for the Klarna equivalent out here, and I appreciate a firm in the U.S., as you guys would know as well. I mean, I appreciate they're very specific to those markets, so you've got access to readily available credit scoring, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, I do think it's exactly as Jason said. For, for me, the kind of interesting fintech bit isn't, look, we've got a more efficient model of doing installment loans. It's how do you really take away any of the kind of friction? How do you allow for people to buy instantly uh, without going through the process of, of either using a card and entering information or, or taking out a loan or whatever it might be and, and really join the dots in the background? And that's a much more significant undertaking and it's, it's much more difficult to do, but I guess that would get me, uh, get me pretty excited about this. 
I'm much more interested in something like Klarna, where they're actually changing the model completely of how you order online by, it's not lay-by or anything, but it's more that they're doing risk and, and, and analytics based on postcodes so that the merchant gets paid by Klarna straight away and then the customer pays Klarna back up to 14 days later. If they combine that with this sort of offer of happy installments, then I think you've got a interesting capability. You couldn't do that probably in China because you don't have the data analytics available right now, but it's coming and certainly in Singapore, Hong Kong and other countries you could do that sort of combined mix of uh, you know, raising the merchant checkout process by taking away the suspicion of not getting the goods, which is what Carla does with happy installments. That would be a really interesting business model. Cool. So the next story up uh, is one that uh, I'm very near and dear to my own heart, so permit me to editorialize very briefly at the beginning of it. So this is um, 15 R3 members trial distributed ledger tech for trade finance. Uh, so the, the really interesting thing here is that, uh, one, I've skipped a story, and two, um, <laughs> that uh, <laughs> that uh, this is uh, really me getting very, very excited about blockchain stuff is clearly what's happening. But Just skip down the story list to the one that you want to talk This about. is the one I've been wanting to talk about since last week. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, you'll forgive me for going deep red, which people on the podcast can't see, but it's a fun moment anyway. All right, so uh, let's cover this one and then we'll jump back to the one before. Um, so uh, briefly dipping into all things blockchain, this has got a more of an international flavor. So people have been talking about blockchain and trade finance for a good while now, about something that was going to be you know, the, the technology that was going to take over the world. And everybody was asking, where would it get real first? What's the first use case going to be? And the really interesting thing about trade finance is you've got a lot of parties who don't necessarily trust each other, who come together for one very large transaction and then may never talk to each other ever again. But it's the, the nature of having some big central solution for every company in the world that uh, that sorts everything out, like a visa for everybody or uh, a SWIFT for everybody, some kind of standard, was always going to be very difficult to pull off and, and make secure. So just for people who don't know, could you explain just what trade finance is? Yeah, sure. So trade finance is, let's say I'm uh, a buyer somewhere in Europe and I want to buy a load of garments from a factory in China. Uh, typically, I would go to that buyer and find the wholesaler somewhere on their website, um, and I would say I would put in an order with them. But then I don't—I've never heard of this supplier before. Um, so how do I know that they're going to take my money and they're actually going to deliver the goods? Well, these uh, these intermediaries called banks get involved, and they say, "Well, we'll we'll manage the money, and if it doesn't come through, there's some insurance packaged around it, and here's some financing uh, to get you through the 30 days till your till your goods arrive." Uh, and then there's a whole uh, business around shipping and ports. Um, you know, so the goods go to the port, they're loaded onto the ship, um, and the, you know, the, there's a piece of paper that basically follows the goods as they go from the factory to the port, to the ship, to the next port, to the loading dock, to your factory where, and to your distribution warehouse. Uh, and during all of that, you've got a whole series of risks and a whole bunch of areas where things could go wrong. So to give you an example, last year I think there was a study I saw um, that the annual cost of uh, FedEx and DHL in trade finance, so this is just the documents about you know where the goods are around the world. That's 40 billion US dollars just in flying paper around the world. Never mind the actual transporting of the goods. And when we're talking about transporting the goods, we're talking about all of world trade. Uh, so this is a pretty huge market. Um, unfortunately, it's quite antiquated. Um, so the way in which those pieces of paper get delivered to a bank are via paper, and then sometimes it's lost, sometimes it's stolen, and it all relies on paper signatures. 
So the amount of forgery and fraud in, in trade finance is absolutely phenomenal. So what we've really got is uh, this very antiquated system where nobody's been able to roll it all up and get everybody to adopt a standard. Nobody's been able to come up with a big centralized solution. So to have 15 banks come out with a shared ledger is uh, is, is particularly interesting. I don't know if uh, anybody I'm, else has uh, anything. I've got a couple of questions for you here, Simon, and then I want to come to Rob and James and Chloe. But um, on the same day that this announcement was made, and you know that this is a key announcement because it's the first thing I've seen actually using um, Corda so far, which mm -hmm. was announced back in April, which is R3's version of the blockchain that's just for the financial system. But on the same day, uh, Bank of America and HSBC came out announcing that they were doing exactly the same thing on the Hyperledger. Mm -hmm. uh, wh why, when Bank of America and HSBC are part of R3's consortia, aren't they in this group? I think it's commercial um, viability mixed with when did you start trying to do something and who did you try to start trying to do it with. Uh, HSBC and, and BAML are two very large banks in their own right controlling a large percentage of the market. If they can move the market in their direction, they potentially consolidate their position. Fifteen smaller banks adopting a standard and being able to move the market in the long tail potentially means that they can move the market in their direction as well towards something that's standardized and lower cost. So I suspect that the bigger banks want to own the IP and want to keep their market position and defend it by owning the IP. And the smaller banks want to push out cost and have open source IP, which is what the, the Corda network kind of moves towards. So, so what's I, the point of the R3 network if the bigger banks that are part of that network then go and do their own thing to own the IP and get to disenfranchise us all the banks that are part of R3? So I uh, guess the, the question is, you know, do you, who's anybody won the standard All those guys are part, are part of the quarter trial. It just seems really weird to me that um, you've got the split, but then you don't have one ledger to rule them all. So And, and, and this happens all the time, right? I mean, we saw this with Euroclear, D Clearstream, DTTC, uh, there are always competing standards um, and eventually one will win. We get into a VHS Betamax war and eventually one one wins out. I don't think there's a right answer. Um, it's typical that the bankers will, will do both um, and one wins and I've seen it go either way. I've seen it go open standards a lot with, with Swift and, and many other consortia, ICAP and, and countless others um, and then there have been others where it was three or four banks that, are, that have really um, kind of then gone on and become the standard. Who knows which way it's going to go but it's interesting times. One, one comment I would make is Hyperledger itself is a very generalized platform. It's designed for anybody to use. So if you're in agriculture and you want to do things around Internet of Things, if you're in the energy market, uh, if you're in any market whatsoever, Hyperledger is this really thin kind of capability of, over which you have to build a lot of IP. Whereas Corda is designed to be quite quite thick in its own right. It's, it does a lot more stuff for you and therefore you as a bank have a lot less to develop. So again, I think it speaks to the strategies of some of these organizations, but then you know, are they trying to take cost out of their organization? Are they trying to get standards where they can launch new uh, products? Or are they trying to just defend market position? That would explain, I think, some of the differential. I don't know if other people have thoughts. We're getting into the thick and thin of it. Maybe I can ask Rob to start off a discussion because, I mean, uh, Standard Chartered and DBS announced the trade finance um, blockchain project with Ripple back in December, so they should be well ahead of these guys. We're, we're speculating here. I'm sure when you get a guest from R3 on board, they'll give you a great answer, but I'm sure there's a reason why there's been some sort of split or some sort of diversification platform they're using, probably to do with things like you know existing alliances or, or to do with you know, compatible formats that, that make a lot of sense. And um, and also where there might be existing you know huge trade flows um, or there's just sort of you know potentially 
aligning regulation. Um, we're not too sure. But at the same time, I tend to agree with Chris. Either, either we're making a new Swift or a new Visa, or we're not. Or they're making their own closed consortium, or we're not. And and I think we're either going to go to a single single system globally, or, or we're not. And and maybe that's okay if we don't. Um, I think the experts, like potentially like UCI and others, can tell us a bit about where it might end up. But I can understand why there's probably probably some splintering of these kind of things because of the human element of, of the, the management structures or the the PR value or, or the, um, you know, the, the the specific business case on the short term that makes people make decisions. So we should underestimate that, but maybe others have a view. I guess I'm close enough to a couple of these uh, initiatives. I, I would say we're all talking of it, you know, relative to SWIFT or the formation of Visa and, and some of these kind of interbank uh, networks. Let's not overstate how mature the, the, the maturity cycle we're at with blockchain right now. I mean, I think this is very much people saying, hey, you know, let's get in the mix. Let's understand what's going on. I mean, for me, almost the more institutions that sign up to something, there seems to be an expectation that, you know, of the three or four consortia or uh, initiatives that have emerged, people are trying to figure out the winner. I mean, I think we're so far from the start of this race. Yeah. That it's 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 crazy to start thinking about who's who's potentially going to get over the finish line. I mean, right now, and as I say, I've been close to a couple of these initiatives. It is as much exploratory as you would imagine, and it is intellectually stimulating, and people are trying to understand some of the potential applications. But gosh, in in my view, at least from a financial services perspective, from a Visa or Swift X esque collaboration, you know, that that that's quite a bit out. I mean, I'd agree as well. This is it's straight from the digital business playbook. You know, the big incumbents decide that they want to uh, to preempt any disruption by creating some kind of you know first mover, big market advantage. The little players get together and, and create an open standard. You might say that it's similar to you know Apple versus Android. You make your move, you make your counter move, but in the end, it creates a fragmented market. If it's immature, we'll learn what works, what doesn't. We'll see some localized examples, um, but I think we must be a long way from seeing this all play out and, and you know, getting towards an end game. Fantastic. Okay, so uh, next up, we've got the story that I missed, which is Channel News Asia. Uh, Hong Kong startups are being starved of banking services. I don't know if, um, if any folks really have a view for what's happening in the Hong Kong market. I know it's one I'm not close to, although I've, I've had the good fortune of visiting a few times. David, do you want to start off with some thoughts here? Startup that's called Design Jar that that's, uh, has, has gone to Citibank and struggled to, to get any sense of uh, sort of traditional banking in any way, shape, or form. And you know, even very significant banking organisations who were sponsoring accelerators or, or, or um, these kind of hackathon capabilities are just enabled to actually provide basic banking experiences to these people in terms of doing stuff, which is you know quite terrifying, really. Um, Chloe, have you got any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't specifically towards Hong Kong, but I'm just coming off the back. Uh, RFI had a business banking summit earlier, oh no, late last week, and pretty much this was the, the bugbear of every startup that we had there. So they were sort of on panels speaking to all the business bankers about how incredibly dissatisfied they were, how difficult it was to, to start anything up. And they pretty much just end up getting investment to start a business, investment from friends. That's traditionally how it starts here. And I would say that's pretty similar around the world at the moment. Um, big issue down under as well. Yeah. James, yeah, I would echo what, I mean, I would echo what Chloe's saying. I, this to me is, is, is a, 
is much larger than Hong Kong. This is a this is a global, this is an international issue. You know, I'm based here in Hong Kong, in my adopted hometown. So let me jump to its defense a little bit. I mean, the reality is, you know, these are policies, whether it's related to anti-money laundering or counter-terrorist financing, that I mean, these rules are coming down from up on high. Let me put it like that. So the reason I think this is coming up in relation to Hong Kong is because it is a, a town that is so associated with ease of doing business. I mean, setting up, registering your company here is very straightforward. Uh, you know, you can, you can get up and running by the next day. So, you know, I, I just think this is an international issue. I, I also have some level of sympathy with the banks, which won't go down well with your listeners, but, you know, the reality is that this is a commercial decision. Do I think they've gone too far the other direction? Absolutely. Fundamentally, yes. Um, but it is in response to regulatory uh, conditions, fines, um, you know, the, the, the legal... Uh, ramifications, in, including criminal responsibility for individual bankers and so on and so forth. So for me, this is a macro issue, and it's related to, you know, what do we want our financial system to look like? How do we want to support small businesses and entrepreneurs? And I think we need to approach this at a, at a higher level than kind of individual uh, nations. That makes sense. Rob, any thoughts? There's got to be some, come, you know, some sort of moment where banks come to the small business community a bit more because right now uh, the, the flat bat, treatment of being battered away if you don't meet a certain set of criteria doesn't really help the advancement of small businesses in many countries. So <clears throat> I don't think it's going to improve unless something dramatic changes. Yeah, there's been the emergence of a, a few announcements I've seen recently of people building small business banks. Uh, interesting stuff happening here. Um, Chris, you were going to lead us into the uh, next story. Chris, um, thoughts on things happening with ANZ? Yeah, there's an interesting interview with Mel Carnegie, who's the former head of Google Australia in the Australian Financial Review. And the headline is, Mel Carnegie plans to make ANZ, or ANZ, depending on where you come from, think like Google. And I saw this and just, I don't know, felt disappointed that she's got that headline, only because I blogged extensively about ANZ last month, because um, they had announced how proud and happy they were that they've got a... Uh, main core system from CSC Hogan that dates back to 1976, uh, back when One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest came out, which is about where it belongs. And so they've actually eaten their way through several uh, heads of digital already because basically they get disillusioned and realize they can't change the bank's executive team to commit to a replacement of core systems. And I really don't see how she's going to be successful in changing that bank's outlook. Um, I, you know, I wish her immense luck, but I just wonder whether anyone can get ANZ to wake up and smell the coffee, to be honest. Um, I'll, I'll jump in there. That's quite funny. I've got a um, I've got an interview with Marley um, in a couple of weeks actually that will will pop on um, FinTech Insider. Um, interesting, like interestingly, that core banking system. I'm not sure whether I should say this or not, but um, it was um, around before I was born. But anyway, I wish <laughs> um, I wish Marley all the best in it too. I think it's um I think it's a really interesting article and it's written by James, who's a, um, a good friend of mine. I think that uh, interesting thing about ANZ, um, how we say it down here, is they do tend to go first to market with a couple of interesting things. So they've got a platform called Blue Notes, which is their sort of news platform that they put out a couple of years ago, which which gets pretty good traction in the Australian market. They're doing that, you know, differently to the other markets. Certainly, um, a lot of that leadership team is changing. I think Shane Elliott is a completely different CEO to Mike Smith. Yeah, I guess the challenge is there for her, but 
you know, she comes from a totally different background and I, I feel like she'll bring some real energy to it. Um, she's certainly going to be fighting for it and she's a woman and I think that's awesome. You know, arguably they need to come out with a, um, a technology story that probably matches into what it is that the aspirations are, are kind of showing us, but um, ANZ have got a, a good history of really doing interesting things and hopefully, um, you know, the, the mentality of somebody who's been a, an ex-Googler bringing into that will, um, you know, really show us a different mentality, but um, Chloe, looking, really looking forward to seeing that, um, that interview when you, uh, you have the time with it. Yeah, just another another point on that, that, that Blue Notes that I mentioned. So Blue, um, ANZ did hire Andrew Cornell, who was the editor of the Fin Review in Australia. So that was an interesting hire for them a couple of years ago as well. So they do tend to bring in people from elsewhere, which actually we're seeing much more across banks in Australia just in general. Very interesting. Okay, so um, we need to very quickly, briefly, thank our sponsors. So um, our sponsor. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Thanks very much to our sponsor. We're now on to the main segment of the show, which is a discussion all about Asia-Pacific. And, uh, of course, we've got our hosts um, and our guests still with us. Uh, Chris has had to step out, unfortunately, uh, but we do still have everybody from the opening of the podcast. So, um, Rob, I was going to ask you to give us your world view of APAC, if there is such a thing. You know, Just your, your view on what's really happening in the space and talk a little bit about uh, Next Money as well, which I think our audience will find very interesting. Sure. So, so I think it, it, it's probably a bit of a cliche now to think of Asia not as a continent and not as a, a single market, but also as a, as a collection of dozens of, of different places that you can do business. And to try and generalize the, the region, let alone generalize places like China, like India themselves, you do so at your peril. And really what we're finding is really fascinating here is is the common pace of growth across the region. Markets like Indonesia, like Vietnam, Philippines, uh, Myanmar, Cambodia, and so on are really opening up in really dramatic ways. Good friends of James and, and mine, you know, are really developing new businesses in these markets that are relatively revolutionary, and they're obviously extremely mobile-first businesses. And the way that the, these markets are embracing these these new models is pretty fantastic. And we hope to bring those case studies and stories and those people to the to the top of the surface for people like your audience and, and others to hear about. We will do that through the year. The consistent thing has been the demand for a single fintech conversation or an integrated and global fintech conversation. So <clears throat> almost every market here is reaching out to either other countries in the region or to other parts of the world in two ways. One is to connect and to benefit from those relationships, but number two, to really prove itself and to say, look, we are the best place for you to come and become a fintech uh, region. Um, and Next Money has been sort of there to help those countries develop. Um, our model, very briefly, is we have you know, a handful of large conferences around the world and we, we love to host those in, in places that excite us. But we also do city chapters. So like TEDx, you can open a, a city chapter in your town or join your local city chapter. We have 44 of those city chapters around the world and around 10,000 members as of today. And what's been fascinating is that those city chapters have sprung up in, in some of the most, what you would probably consider to be you know, undeveloped places. They've been places like Phnom Penh, they've been places like some back cities in India, they've been places like even in Africa, in Accra and Ghana, 
um, in Guatemala City, uh, in in parts of Malaysia that you wouldn't expect. So it's been fantastic to have a platform for those guys to connect and to talk. And it's just purely indicative of the fact that really for fintech, there's nowhere that it doesn't apply. There's nowhere that it's not an important new movement for these countries and these companies to develop. But conversely, we've found that um, you know New York and London and, and San Francisco and Hong Kong, which is our flagship event in January, uh, the FinTech Finals. Um, and in London, we've got a big event coming up uh, on September the 14th. And we'd love all of the FinTech Insider podcast uh, listeners to come along. You get a special discount code of 30% off with the code INSIDER30. That's INSIDER30. At, um, if you go to nextmoney.org, find the London event and uh, buy a ticket today and you'll see many of the stars that are on the podcast today. Asia is a fantastically diverse market and uh, long may continue. Uh, James, I'm sure you probably see the same on the border of China between you know, there and places like Thailand, um, Singapore. What's been your observation as well? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, it's going to be hard to follow such an organic plug. <laughs> so, so let me, I mean, for the benefit of listeners, Rob and I are good friends, so don't, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to yeah, meet you. And James drinking whiskey. Let's just re at that, shall we? I am drinking whiskey, but it is, it's quarter past ten uh, here in Hong Kong PM, I should add. So um, I'm not going to give the EY piece, but I would say, you know, I think what, what attracted me to the role, and one of the things we're doing a little different is that we're an integrated firm out here. So that means you know, I don't sit in a Hong Kong office or even a greater China office. I'm sitting in Asia Pacific, and that's pretty compelling because I think, you know, What's happening out here is, as Rob rightly said, look, it's the variances across countries are incredible. Hong Kong and Singapore, obviously, relatively well comparable. China is just in its own league entirely. Uh, you look at what's happening in Vietnam and Indonesia and the Philippines, some of these places. I mean, for me, I think what's exciting about Asia right now is, you know, what is fintech? I mean, is it as much about you know, people often talk about supply side in terms of, you know, availability of capital, availability of businesses, entrepreneurs, etc. But, you know, out here it's as much about demand as anything else. And, you know, I, I was in Shanghai recently, met with the CEO of, of one of the big unicorns up there, and, and he made a pretty interesting point. He said, look, for him, at least, fintech is a Chinese phenomenon, because he said, whereas innovation in traditional financial services is sexy in the U.S. or Europe, unmet needs are hardcore. And, I mean, that's what these guys are doing in China in developing markets where you look at a country like Vietnam, 90 million people uh, in, in Vietnam, 70% of them don't have a bank account. So if you can come to a position where you can provide financial services in a traditional or non-traditional manner, we know that credit is a multiplier. We know that all the associated benefits that go with it, the opportunities are just pretty incredible. So for me, that's, that, that's what fintech is all about out here in Asia. The diversity is part of the compelling proposition, but just the, just the, scape, the, the scale of the opportunity is immense. So, Chloe, what are your thoughts really on, oh, on the entire region? Certainly from a research perspective, RFI are really seeing um, this thirst for discussion on fintech very much from the banks um, and everyone that we deal with across Asia. Um, we deal with uh, hyper growth markets and we've recently re uh, released an urban financial sentiment index where we're looking particularly at China, India, Indonesia and Vietnam, echoing there what James was saying about those are area of areas of interest for the banks. Definitely top of mind. Uh, Rob, you, you had a couple more thoughts I believe and, and I think there was a uh, mention earlier from uh, James about wanting to, to have a good rant about Alibaba so we'll see if we can get, get him to that shortly but um, you had a few more thoughts? Yeah, we'll leave the rant to the crazy Irishman. But uh, I think um, I heard an interesting quote the other day. I think it was Brett 
King said the other day he was with the CEO of, of China Merchant Bank and um, you know, one of the bigger banks in China and, and certainly one of the, the better performing banks as far as progression goes and his words were, look, we know we've lost the payments game already um, but will we also lose deposits and credit? And the, 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 the fear of banks in China, for example, is that yes, Alibaba and Alipay and those guys have already won this, the, 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 the device side, but will they also lose credit? Will they also lose borrowing? Will, will they also lose the savings market? And that is a huge upheaval and a huge uh, kind of uh, precedent to set globally on, on if banks become irrelevant to these new technology players. And um, and James will know that you know, China is this sort of, not a microcosm because it's an enormous, enormous market, but it's sort of like a, a canary in the coal mine, I think, for a lot of banks globally, that that this is the progression they'll make globally. So um, I don't know. It's a, it's a fascinating sort of part of the world to be in. We focus on China a lot for, for very good reason. There are thousands of other places in the region that do exciting things, um, India notwithstanding, um, and Indonesia especially. But really, I think you know, China is overbearing in its, in its attention and focus that it gets. And rightfully so. I, I guess I've got a question there because we often um, hear, especially coverage of WeChat and uh, Ant Financial, uh, there's a big focus on China. Uh, and I wonder how much of what's happening in China with those kinds of platforms is due to the, to the political sort of nature of China, to the, the kind of communist uh, overlord, and how much of it is really uh, copyable or, or exportable to the West? Uh, I mean, let me jump in here because this is this is my favorite topic, and I think it's 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 been beautifully framed, Jason. Because I do think we do get blinded by the lights a little bit with China, and and me as much as anyone. I mean, the scale of the scale of the opportunity, the scale of some of these businesses, and the speed at which they're growing. I, I mean, I think there are a number of unique kind of aspects that have led to the the the, the, the rise and the speed of the rise of fintech in China, not least of which is the regulatory environment. Uh, the underserved uh, needs that we, we spoke of, and the pretty rapid transition of tech players into financial services in a, in a much more aggressive way than we've seen in other markets. But to your, to your question and to your point, I mean, I think this is fascinating because, you know, there is this notion that is China the kind of Galapagos of fintech as well. I mean, ha have these players been somewhat protected from the outside world? There's no doubt that, you know, from a uh, financial ser traditional financial services perspective and from a technology perspective, China has been somewhat of a closed shop, uh, and there's no disputing that. You look at the sensitive industries lists, you look at the uh, investment um, prohibitions in relation to international investors, and, and so on and so forth. And you know, one could take a view that uh, perhaps some of these large China fintechs haven't been battle hardened on the international uh, stage. I mean, the flip side, of course, is you know, you talk to you talk to a hundred of these companies, and ninety-eight of them will tell you, "Well, why would I need to go international in the first place? My whole market is so is so great." Um, but you know, it is interesting. You know, not not to get into my kind of Alibaba and Ant financial phase, but you know, Alibaba have have openly, and all of this is very public. Alibaba have spoken about they want to get two billion customers by thereabouts 2020. You know, it's a question of they are aggressively going international. Uh, Ant financial, which is as we know the financial affiliate. Uh, is aggressively going international. Large investment in Paytm in India, uh, Alibaba acquisition of Lazada in Singapore, Southeast Asia, uh, investments in Korea, in Thailand, etc., etc. And of course, we, we mentioned earlier about the European uh, partnerships. 
the, the big question for me on the international um, spectrum now is, as these companies and Tencent, and we can talk about a couple of the other a couple of the other guys as well, as they go international, what challenges will they face that that they didn't face in, in their home market and their domestic market, and equally, what trade-offs will they need to provide some of these partners? By way of access to China, because access to China, and you know, many FS firms and many tech firms have, have spent a heck of a lot of money uh, and, and gotten nowhere in China. But you know, as these big firms go international, will they have to provide some level of market entry, and what will that look like? So, you know, for me, I think there's going to be a, the next couple of years we're going to see some really, really interesting uh, partnerships, uh, international partnerships between some of the big China fintechs, and you know, I just think the results are going to be, you know, on a scale that we have yet to yet to see elsewhere. That's phenomenal, James. And I think that the Galapagos of fintech is my sentence of the day. I, I really like that idea. Um, there's, I think, something really interesting about the idea that even the mighty Uber gave up on trying to enter China. China is the vast elephant inside a massive elephant. It's it's a huge, huge. Yeah, yeah. It's can a we just can we can we take a moment just to reflect upon that an elephant <laughs> within an elephant? No, I mean, I, well, it's it's, it's a pregnant elephant. elephant. It's, a <laughs> it's the elephant of Galapagos, basically, James. Just a bit of yours. Elephant in the Galapagos. This is uh, this is a lot going on with metaphors here. Sorry, Rob. Continue. <laughs> There's an infographic here we have to, we need to make. So arms um, now. <laughs> There's a, there's a huge focus in China for obvious reasons, and and it outweighs so much that the rest of the region does. And India is obviously comparable, as James said. You know, this is a market that that even Chinese companies are going into with great force. Um, and Indonesia is the same with Lazada's purchase um, recently. Um, but pound for pound, the other thing that I think will be interesting, and James, you might have a view on this from the data you've seen. Pound for pound, there are still some markets that aren't as large as these, but yield more. So potentially Hong Kong, Australia, for example, and even Singapore, on a on a sort of per head or per dollar investment basis, can still outperform some of these places because there's still an overinvestment in things like I mean, Chloe would know as well. There's the overinvestment in things like mortgages or personal loans or on a pure product basis. Where would you focus your attention? So I'll give you a good story, right? A friend of mine runs a startup here, and he said everyone's saying go to China, go to India. Um, but he did some analysis, and, and the outcome was for his particular sector, and I won't go into detail for his purpose, but he said there are basically five cities I need to concentrate on. One is Sydney, because I can go and attack you know, basically half the Australian market and access a huge mortgage market, a huge PL market. The second one is Singapore, because everyone's here. The third one is probably Hong Kong, because the Hong Kong influx, and James would know, the influx of funds into Hong Kong from China of money into things like insurance, investment products, world products is phenomenally huge. And Hong Kong is right there, one city, and it's a massive, massive market. The other one is maybe two or three Indian cities might satisfy them. So really when you boil it down, when you're really looking in your particular niche, there are some places that have a huge weightage of interest and and advantage over others. And for him he thought, well, I sh I'm here to represent Asia, but really I've just got to fly to five cities. It makes his life easier, his targets more clear, and it might make his business boost forward a lot more. I think the reality is we talk about China, we talk about the size of the opportunity. Actually, the competitive market in China, I mean, it's highly competitive. Not only do we have a size of opportunity, we have a size of tech talent, uh, whether in, in Shenzhen here across the border, out of Shanghai, Beijing, 
Um, but we we also you know have a have a deeply deeply competitive market there. I mean, there are a lot of very smart people doing a lot of very interesting things in China. So, you know, if you're coming from the outside in, I mean, the days of of kind of Westerners or Guaylos kind of coming in and saying, you know what, I'm going to make my mark in China. I mean, they are long gone. Believe me, you've got a, a hugely uh, industrious and entrepreneurial people uh, who are who are doing really exciting and interesting stuff. And in fact, we've seen almost the the reverse, the inverse at this stage, which are you know some of the interesting growth stage fintechs uh, coming to us out of China and saying, you know what, the Chinese market is too hot right now. We actually are looking for opportunities, perhaps in slightly less competitive environments. I do think we can talk about China forever, and I'm, I'm typically happy to do so. But I mean, there's so much else going on out here. As Rob says, there are interesting developments happening all across the region. I mean, one thing I would add is, you know, whether it be Singapore or Hong Kong or Sydney or wherever else, is trying to position itself as the fintech capital of Asia. And I say, guys, get real. All right. I mean, there are going to be a dozen fintech capitals of Asia. There already are. China itself has four, arguably already. So. <laughs> I think we need to start thinking about what is your competitive advantage. I mean, for, this is classical economics almost, right? Comparative advantage relative to others. For me, I look at Hong Kong, you know, my home market, and I say, you know, as a trading hub for, for trade finance, as FX, the depth of our capital markets, these are the types of things that we really want to start concentrating on. These are the types of fintech uh, areas of focus for what I consider to be the credible teams building credible product. In Singapore, obviously, there's you know a deep uh, wealth management space, private banking. I mean, we talked about money coming out of uh, China to Hong Kong. Increasingly, it's it's bypassing Hong Kong and going to Singapore in, in, in some verticals. So, you know, very interesting uh, proposition in on the wealth management side in Singapore. Access to Southeast Asia, etc. Australia, I think, is particularly interesting insofar as you know reasonably sized domestic markets, certainly relative to Hong Kong or Singapore, but you know, in order to scale in any meaningful way, you're going to have to go international. And historically, I mean, Chloe, you know, you would have a better sense of this. Historically, that would have been to the to, to the UK and Europe, perhaps to the US. But increasingly, I think there's a realization politically, economically, socially that, you know, Australia is part of Asia. Uh, you know, these markets are incredibly important and growing. Uh, and, you know, I, I get a lot of... Uh, Folks out of Stone and Chalk in Sydney, or, or, or some of the other um, some of the other hubs in Australia, you know, talking to us quite a lot about okay, where in Asia, where do we raise ourselves, where do we try and sell into, what 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 does that opportunity look like? So, you know, and we haven't even spoken about Vietnam, which I'm personally very excited about, or or Indonesia, Philippines, and so on and so forth. So look, it, yeah, I mean, China is is a topic unto itself, but you know, there's so much going on out here, it, it's hard not to get not not to get excited. Very interesting point. So um, I think that does it for our, our mega segment three um, and on Asia Pacific. I just wanted to thank each and every one of you for joining us this week. Um, Chloe, Rob, uh, and James. Chloe, is there anything uh, that you want to mention before we before we head to our next segment? Uh, no, I'll, I'll just I'll pop in a little plug of my own here. We've got a global digital banking conference happening in Singapore um, on the uh, 8th of September. Pretty exciting. Interestingly, we didn't talk about it tonight, uh, but we've got Mass speaking at that, uh, doing a fireside chat on their sort of in, involvement in fintech at the moment because they've got a big uh, Singapore fintech festival coming up in November. Uh, I think Rob's involved with that one as well. So that's probably it from me. Um, it's great to be involved. Thank you so much. And thank you to all of our guests. Uh, now I'm going to throw it to an interview with uh, somebody who knows a lot about the same region, Mr. Scott Bales. Uh, roll the interview. 
So I'm here at Texel Summit in Thailand with Scott Bales, who runs Innovation Labs Asia. And uh, Scott and I know each other from way back when because he's uh, been Mr. Mobile when I first met him. Um, what, what are you up to these days, Scott? And tell me a bit about Innovation Labs. Yeah, Chris, it's uh, you know it's been a while. And it's it's actually great to catch up. Um, you know the the space around mobile and fintech has evolved, growing fast. Uh, hence, my what I do now has, has evolved as well. Uh, Innovation Labs Asia now works on two two sides of the same coin. Uh, I help startups build um, their own businesses, so looking at product market fit, ideation processes, market growth, commercial development, that kind of stuff. But also working with corporates that will have a desire to be more innovative. Uh, and so we work with them around how do they use innovation for competitive advantage. And so the the, the two work quite nicely side by side because I can draw inspiration from the diversity of the startup world and apply that in terms of intellectual insights with my corporate clients um, the, the the sweet spot on the magic ma- magic happens when I'm mentoring a startup that fits the capability desire of a, of a corporate and we can bring them together so you're looking at things like you know banks are looking at blockchain now uh, insurance looking at healthcare you know th- where they have still natural innovation shifts in their industry um, so that's what we focus on today yeah I'm predominantly mostly in Asia but seeing more clients now in the Middle East Australia and actually even uh, sort of uh, Scandinavia, so heading up to Norway in a couple of weeks as well. What's the Asian um, market like for encouraging startups? And does it, it obviously varies by country, but wh- wh- where's the main centers? Yeah, I mean, there's the two big centers really are um, Hong Kong and Singapore. The governments are basically in this like cutthroat battle to attract talent to their countries. Uh, and both have very supportive grant programs uh, to support startups to move to their countries. Uh, but the reality is, the biggest one is still China. China, just because of pure size, is bigger than the rest of the region combined. Um, and Shanghai, so, Beijing, or? Shanghai, Guangzhou. You know, they, it, almost every, there are seven Chinese cities that are bigger than Singapore, yeah. <laughs> and so that, that's why they just get from a volume size perspective. But you know, the Singapore government, through the various industry bodies, um, particularly backed by the Economic Development Board, uh, realizes that they need to keep Singapore competitive. Um, so they're creating uh, a very attractive base for startups and for, for, for innovation with corporates as well. So you know, I've done a lot of work with the Monetary Authority there on the allocation of their they have $200 million fund to enable financial services innovation in Singapore. So they're funding a lot of the, corp, a lot of the, the fintech labs you're seeing today with like MetLife, HSBC, Aviva. They're getting grants from um, EDB through the Monetary Authority as catalysts for financial innovation in, in Singapore. Yeah, I mean, one of the stunning figures at the moment is that over $10 billion in the first half of 2016 has been invested in FinTech Asia, compared to just over a billion in the US and half a billion in Europe. So obviously FinTech is hot in Asia. It's, are you seeing that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it comes from a number of things. One is uh, you probably have the most active governments investing. So a lot of that money actually is government money that are just e- investing in economic growth in their countries. Um, China is a big one. Because remember, China didn't have a lot of financial services full stop. So that's why you look at, I mean, look at some of the biggest numbers. They are Ant Financial, um, Alipay, like their deals basically weight that, that number you're talking about. You know, I mean, just to, for instance, the Alibaba acquisition of Lazada means they also get HelloPay, which becomes one of the largest fintech M&A deals in this region in like 10 years. And so that, that's, that skews the numbers. But the market's interesting out here because you have such diverse needs in the region. Singapore has 100% financial inclusion. 
but it's surrounded by countries that have less than 10%. Like Indonesia has less than 10% financial inclusion. Malaysia is struggling. The Philippines are struggling. And so we're seeing things particularly, financial investments are now becoming a, a, a foundation stone for other industries. So for instance, you can't do e-commerce without electronic payments. And you can't do electronic payments without financial inclusion. And so you're seeing things like cash on delivery and escrow operations to enable e-commerce. You're seeing things around um, lower cost digital money um, offerings like MOL or Doku Wallet in Indonesia um, that actually create an instrument that doesn't require a bank to give a basic financial product to someone so they can buy stuff online. And so this is a pattern that's happening time and time again, uh, particularly when it's backed by larger players like Alibaba, Lazada, like the ones that want to do more e-commerce in the region. Uh, they know that they need to get financial products into the hands of the average consumer. The second part of it is on the institutional side. Hong Kong, Singapore's financial hubs had a rough couple of years, you might say, as the knowledge gap in investment banking comes down. And there used to be a time when you basically had to be an MBA to be a dealer. Now you can learn most of the skills in a couple of months mm -hmm. um, because most of the recommendations, algorithms, and news feeds do the work for you. You just click the go button. And I'm, I don't want to simplify you know, investment banking, but that's kind of what it is today. And as more things like um, sentiment trading, algorithmic trading come out, treasury management in itself is going to change as well. And so that's where you'll see Hong Kong and Singapore very much heavily investing in the shift in treasury. You've touched on something that I think I'm seeing quite regularly here and also in Africa and Latin America, which is in Europe and North America, most of the fintech investment is going into evolving the bank models and um, adding supplementary services around those bank models. Whereas I think you mentioned the unbanked here, but equally SME funding and other services, we're seeing far more focus upon um, new models of paying, basically, um, for people who never before could, could pay. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, that's why I said everyone, the, 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 to me, the most exciting fintech startup on the planet is actually Alipay. Not because of what they do in other parts of it, but if you have a look at their supply chain finance they're doing uh, within the Alibaba network, is if you're, so if you're an Alibaba, um, let's see, manufacturer or distributor, Alipay already knows the inputs and outputs of your business. They can do financial forecasting, and they know your seasonality, they know, know everything. And so if they know that you're going to be releasing a new product in the third quarter, you're going to have a shortage of about a quarter of a million dollars in capital to get over that thing, they know your, they know your past history, they know where you're getting traffic from, uh, they can basically lend you that $250,000 to help you with your cash flow so you don't have the help. Uh, intrinsic supply chain finance is going to change a lot of supply chains and value chains in almost every market on the planet. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting it to happen soon in cars, in housing, everywhere there is a value chain where basically there is a disconnect between the buyer and the manufacturer. Eventually the manufacturer will finance the buyer without the need of a bank so that you can afford a Tesla, yep. you, that you can afford solar, that you can buy your you know, mansion in, down in, in South London. So the idea of disintermediation is becoming a reality in that context. Yep. It also puts the instance is that, so the sweet spot in, in, in FinTech right now is uh, working capital management. And so if you look at Starbucks, for instance, they're a fantastic example of taking advantage of working capital management. They make more money off their prepaid card than they do off coffee. And so you, what they've just realized is they're just gonna change the, change the steps in the value chain to almost finance the coffee, basically, in their own value chain, so that then they'll put all this, all this capital in their balance sheet and then their treasury functions will make more money out of it. Mm. In, internally, they don't even have to pay their bank anymore. And so you look at large things, so all of a sudden you'll start taking manufacturers will start taking more of the financial risk in the distribution of their own products. So it's, I think it's gonna be very, very, very soon. You're gonna see more supply chain financing in um, cars. Um, no, I, and I have no doubt that uh, the first deal will probably be something like a Tesla Uber deal, 
where um, they'll do, instead of borrowing money from the bank to go and buy 100,000 Teslas, Uber will just do a finance deal with directly with, with, with Tesla. Yeah. And the banks are out. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's quite interesting that car firms have made profits from financial services for yeah. decades, yeah. you know, through their own financing schemes. Tell me a little bit about the companies that you're mentoring in Innovation Labs, because you said two-thirds of them are fintech-style companies. Yes. So, I mean, it's um, so I mean, a lot of them are actually come through partners. So, I, I, I'm very fortunate in that I've now got some really good partners that give me access to things. So, I, I, you know, I mentor through Startup Bootcamp, I mentor through DTAC, I mentor, you know, so... The, the ones that are, that are showing really good promise are the ones that are aligned to trends. So I'm seeing things right now, particularly here in Thailand, where you're looking at either financial education. So Finnevar is a, is, is a startup right now in the DTAC Batch 4 that marries basically say the gamification of financial literacy um, into a product. So kind of think like, remember what, um, uh, what was it there? Play Moolah. You remember Play Moolah? Mm. So they used to gamify financial literacy. Yep. Um, so basically embedding that kind of experience into a financial product yeah. so that you can actually improve your financial literacy through the product. It's it's almost like progressive complexity, basically. So that's something that I'm really excited about. The other ones I'm really excited about are actually in the insurance space. So ones that can focus on, here is a huge piece of fat sitting on the table, and that is claims cost reduction in insurance, healthcare, and life sectors. Mm. In this country alone, Thailand alone, uh, annual claims exceeds 4 billion US dollars, okay? Now here's an interesting stat for you. If I could get you just to go to the doctor that that my insurance company has already negotiated with a discount, I can reduce your average claim cost by 17%. That's 17% on 4 billion dollars. That's yeah, a lot yeah. of money. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and all I have to do is find a way to make sure you go to the right doctor. Because yeah. here, so here in Thailand, interesting part is that there is still a lot of apprehension in the healthcare sector, but it's because of insurance, not because of healthcare. And so if you live here, before you'll even go and see a GP, you'll call your insurance agent and say, which doctor am I covered at? The challenge is that phone call is to a commercially incentivized individual <laughs> to make a recommendation in his favor. And what they will do is they will recommend a doctor where they know they're gonna get a kickback. Yeah. And that doctor may not be the doctor that that's actually has the discount from your actual health provider, but is still covered. So it basically means that first GP visit, instead of being the discounted rate of 700 baht, which you might have got through your, your through your policy, they send you to one where it's a hundred baht because they sorry a thousand baht because they get a hundred baht kickback, and yep. so that's still very rampant here in, in in Asia. So it creates a little apprehension, uh, and so if we can just correct that, you can save the insurance companies seventeen percent of four billion dollars. The second part is the absence of a of a um uh, a, a stable outpatient network. So you got UK, Australia. You don't have to stay in hospital for a lot of your procedures. And the example I would always give is that um, in Australia, most insurance companies will cover four nights um, uh, inpatient for a new mother. Uh, you know, your, your wife just give given birth. I don't know how many nights you spend in hospital. Um, but uh, in Australia, what happens is the insurance company will cover four. But medically, they need to be there for two if they've done a natural birth. Mm -hmm. And so what they've realized that for, as an insurance company, it's cheaper to pay for a five-star hotel for those last two nights than it is to have you as inpatient. Right. So they move you. So in, so in Melbourne, the, the big case study was you would move from, uh, what is it, the, the, the women's private hospital in kind of the Fitzroy area, and you'd move into the Park Hyatt, a five-star spanking hotel, and a nurse would be on, a, on, on rotation in there. Hmm. Basically, you would go from being $1,100 a night in cost down to $400 a night in cost, and the insurance company is laughing all the way to the bank. Mm. So you're seeing more countries like that, particularly here in Indonesia, because the absence of outpatient, they can't even do that. 
And so the example we're looking at here is a company looking at um, creating an outpatient care network that they're trying to do an affiliation with the insurance sector, where it literally be that, okay, if you do a hip replacement, which is one of the most ex expensive procedures here in Thailand, it would normally take 21 days in hospital, but you could theoretically go home in 14 days <laughs> if you could get to the toilet yourself. So you have people who are staying in hospital for seven extra days because they can't get to the toilet on their own. Yep. And so if I can send you home and put a, a nurse in, in, your, in, in your house for 75% less cost, yep. awesome. The insurance yep. company, again, laughing all the way to the bank. So those are the kind of startups that I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying where they're really changing the, the core fundamentals of a, of, a, of a traditional industry. I mean, the next big one, which I've been trying to untap, it's a hard one, is preventative medicine will change insurance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, insurance companies claim they do preventative medicine today, but they don't really. I mean, we can basically reverse engineer cancer risk by just investing in preventative medicine. Yep. And that, that's going to be a big, big economic change for insurance companies. So in the next um, you know, couple of years, what are the main things that you think will be rising out of your area in terms of um, key technology trends, the key new things that we'll see in fintech? Um, so the things that I'm, I'm very, in terms of the capabilities, I'm, very, I'm still very close to the idea of big data as an enabler to artificial intelligence because that lays the technology capability to do things like preventative medicine and more importantly, what I call real-time risk mitigation. And so real-time risk mitigation affects industries that their commercial model is based on an arbitration of perceived risk. Uh, and so insurance is, that, is exactly that. They know whether you're likely to die or get sick better than you do. Yep. Uh, and so through big data and AI, that actually becomes hopefully more accessible for you as an individual. So not only through DNA and you know various bio profiling and so forth, we can say, okay, you're, we know, Chris, you're going to exceed life expectancy by four years. It actually cha completely changes the life premium model on, that, you, that you have for your, your life insurance. But it also knows that, okay, you're at risk of getting cardiovascular disease in your 60s, of uh, dementia in your 70s, and we can actually do things now to decrease the likelihood and severity that are actually happening in your life which commercially decreases the claims cost of those of that care in your life as well. And so more and more, we're going to basically see like the Internet of Things and AI coming to your biology to manage things that are already kind of trying to do that on your behalf. Yep. Um, the next part we'll probably see is um, more societies that uh, have built uh, financial inclusive ecosystems. So I recently joined the board of Access. Access is a blockchain enablement association in, in Singapore. We work very closely with the Monetary Authority uh, and advising them on, the, on their regulatory sandpit for, for blockchain startups. Uh, and, and we actually see distributed ledger, uh, smart contracts, they, those core technologies, fundamentally changing the nature of a number of industries, particularly the monetary system. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would love to see blockchain in things like medical records, trade finance, uh, supply chain, even, even simple monetary systems. Uh, I, I, you know, I can't disclose which, but there is a country that's actually considered putting their central monetary authority on, on a block on the blockchain, and saying, okay, we own, well, we don't, we're not a single institution, but as a network of institutions, we'll own a distributed currency platform. Yep. And you know, and, and that kind of stuff's great because guess what? You know, we don't want to pick on client, but then you have big, big vendors like CSE that aren't making two billion dollars a year managing a mainframe, because um, yep. that mainframe doesn't need to exist anymore. <laughs> Uh, so those things are, to me are really exciting. I mean, they're big, long stream changes, but they will change the fundamental pills of a number of industries. And just as a closing note, what's your uh, record speed on your bike? My record speed? So my, uh, at the moment, uh, I, I focus my personal goal is around uh, working on a 40K time trial. 
uh, trying to get that under sort of about uh, the 56 minute mark. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how fast that is overall against like you know pro athletes, but uh, it's a personal goal of myself of just you know I, I love the cycling. It's kind of for some anyone that's that's I have a second blog now by the way, which is more popular than my professional blog. <laughs> um, What's it called? Espresso Cyclist. Okay. Uh, it's and so it's getting thirty five thousand views a month, which is twice the views I'm getting yeah. from my professor my professional blog. It's also opened a whole new outlet. But anyway, cycling for me is now my meditation. Most of my best thinking is done on the bike, particularly on a Monday. I have a I have a, a routine on a Monday where I do a long, slow ride. It helps me basically meditate. Uh, and my best ideas come from there. My best insights. Um, you know, I, I work on the bike as well. So I actually will ride with headphones. And I'm busy talking to Siri the whole time, taking notes, sending actions to my staff from the bike. Because I said, oh, yeah, this is a great idea. Let's get a new content idea, new blog idea, uh, new recommendation to send to Chris or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the cycling has become a good balance of you know work-life balance and, I, and i'm finding new new energy and new insight from it on that note scott on your bike <laughs> thanks chris it's been <laughs> a great to catch up in bangkok cheers mate so with that interview that concludes this episode of fintech insider thank you so much for joining us of course we'll be back next week uh, before we go though just wanted to let you know that next money conference that rob Findlay was able to give an ever so subtle plug about uh, in one of our earlier segments is coming to London on the 14th of September. Uh, do Google Next Money um, if this is something of interest to you. And if you're struggling to justify it to your boss or you want to go and pay yourself, use the code INSIDER30. That's the word INSIDER, then three zero, and you'll get a 30% discount. One of the best discounts that money can buy, kind of. All right, guys, until next week, you've been awesome. Take care.